Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour on your radio where we talk about science. And who are we? Well, I am Stu. And on this week's show, I'm going to be talking about the Chinese space station Tiangong and its unceremonious departure from our celestial heavens. Splash down in the ocean, but also <laughs> that's the soundscape. That's that's yeah. That's our special effects department there. Yeah, I'm, I'm the... on yeah, Claire's on Foley today. <laughs> but I'm also going to be talking about you know the future of space stations. Why do we need space stations? And who's got space stations up there? And who will have space stations up orbiting the Earth in the future? Mm, it's not who you think. It's not who you think necessarily, and it's interesting who's got the capability to put things up at the moment, but we'll get to that later in the show. Claire, what have you got for us this week? Well, um, I recently returned from New Zealand, and um, there are some Australian native species that have gone a little bit feral in New Zealand. And you would probably, when I say that, you probably think of one thing. Possums is what springs to mind. Possums is what springs to mind. However, there is another Australian native that is wreaking havoc over there. I'm going to talk a little bit about that and, um, and tell a very interesting story about um, an Australian native species that was thought to be extinct but was found in New Zealand. Anyway, wow. I won't reveal any more. Well, you can't make me. No, I, well, You're going to have to listen. Please reveal more later in the show. <laughs> I will reveal more later in the show. Okay. It is interesting though because, yeah, New Zealand, they have all sorts of feral problems because there's no predators. There's no mammals apart from a couple of bats. No native mammals, but there's lots of other mammals well, that are running wild. Well, there's lots of feral mammals now. <laughs> Rabbits, hedgehogs, oh ferrets. Rats. Stoats. And those things, stoats. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, lucky, lucky New Zealand. Mm. Uh, and also Chris will be joining us to talk about the recent, well, I don't know if it's a discovery or an announcement, but basically some researchers have claimed to discover a new organ in the human body, which was hiding in plain sight all along. A new organ? Yeah. Not a, not a Hammond. Is it a big one or a small one? It's not a pipe organ like in the in the town hall. No, no, no. It's 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 supposed to be. Well, they're claiming it's the biggest organ in the human body. It's called the interstitium, um, and yeah, Chris will explain what that actually is and whether or not it's something that they can really lay claim to. We'll we'll have to stay tuned for that later in the show. So please do. Space flight followers will probably have been following the demise of the Chinese Tiangong-1 space station, which was launched back in 2011 for an intended two-year mission. Uh, it was designed to test out various technologies for the Chinese space program and repeatedly had its mission extended until it stopped responding to ground controls in 2016. 
Um, so basically, it's been out of control since 2016. And it's basically become the Skylab of the 21st century. Is that correct? P- pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Those uh, who don't remember, Skylab was an American space station that similarly didn't last as long as meant to, I think. Well, this one lasted longer than it was meant to, okay. but they but they lost control of it before they had a chance to guide it back to Earth. So its orbit deteriorated and being out of control... Nobody knew exactly where it was going to come down to Earth. But on the 2nd of April, Chinese officials say the vehicle came down. Uh, Not that much of it would have actually hit the surface. The majority of the craft burned up on re-entry. And as it was over the Pacific Ocean, whatever was left is now either sinking or already on the seabed. Um, So China had already launched another space station back in 2016 called Tiangong 2. Tiangong means uh, heavenly palace, which is just... Sounds appropriate. Yeah, what they called it. Because you could, you know, they actually sent um, Chinese astronauts up there and stuff. Uh, And they are planning a permanent modular space station to be in orbit in the early 2020s. uh, Because they also plan to land people on the moon and to launch probes to Mars. So their space station will be integral to those missions because it'll provide them with a sort of halfway point or a starting point for those missions. Um, But also because the International Space Station is kind of winding down. Oh, really? Yeah, so the ISS has been in orbit for 17 years um, and it's currently in low Earth orbit, which means below 2,000 kilometres off the ground. Um, but it's only projected to be in use for another 10 years. So by 2028... That's the, a fairly good lifespan, though. The, oh, it? yeah, yeah, it is. But, but you know, by the time the Chinese get their permanent space station up, it'll only have about five years left on its um, proposed run. Will they let other people use their station, though, as well? Well, this is, this is the tricky thing, is... Um, so the ISS, the International Space Station, consists of modules provided by the United States and separate modules provided by the Russian space agency Roscosmos. Um, And there has been talk of Roscosmos and NASA cooperation on a replacement space station, but nothing official has actually confirmed whether that's happening or not. So it, it may well be that the Chinese space station is the only, you know, inhabitable space station that's up there at the time. So negotiations about this sort of thing are... um you know, this this has to happen at some point because uh, otherwise that that will be the end of the the US um, capabilities in in that area, I guess. Um, so, just a little bit about the ISS. So, the Russian modules on the ISS are designed to be autonomous to some degree. So, they're supposed to be capable of docking and connecting themselves. So, they connect essential services like power and all that sort of stuff without a crew. So uh, they, they could probably sort of recycle those modules and maybe hook them onto the, the Chinese one when they finally get that going, potentially. As long as the parts are compatible. It's not the kind of thing you want to really take chances with. No, but I mean, I guess you could sort of get adapters. I mean, you know, you could, they, could, they could engineer something to, to connect them up, probably, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, p- power is power. It just needs maybe needs to go through a transformer or something like uh, yeah, that. Yeah, I'm just thinking make sure all the bits 
fit properly and there's no gaps where air can leak out. And that, well, that you kind certainly stuff, wouldn't you know? want that sort of yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, but but the Russians designed their modules with uh, the idea that they could be sent in advance of human-led missions to other planets so that the modules would arrive first, configure themselves into an orbiting space station so that... Um, you know, when, when people arrived, they would have an orbital base that they could then have, you know, landings on the surface and that sort of thing. So it's a pretty cool idea. They haven't done it yet. They have never, they haven't tried it out over those distances. All they've done is put them up into low earth orbit around uh, our planet. And that worked pretty well. So that's, you know, it's, it's it's a good test, I guess. Um, But in, in the short term, the ISS is serviced by Soyuz rockets, which are provided by the Russians and Dragon rockets, which are owned by SpaceX, who's an American aerospace company. So at present, the US government doesn't have any vehicles capable of either delivering cargo to a space station or retrieving it to bring it back to Earth, including passengers. So that's a bit of a worry for the US space program, is that they basically don't have anything to get people or stuff up and down out of space. They've privatised. They're letting Elon Musk solve their problems, much like South Australia is. Well, yeah, possibly. Um, I don't know how that, you know, will will, uh, will, will Trump's proposed Space Force be uh, a private enterprise or will that, will that be a government agency? They'll have the best epaulettes on any outfit, <laughs> I'm sure, the Space they'll Force. Be, they'll be designed by the best designers from Project Runway or something. Yeah. 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 Um, so, look, you know, the, I think the space station idea, and, you know, there have been space stations since the, the sort of 70s. Um, they had Mir and they've had... Uh, and Skylab. And Skylab, yeah, which yeah. Um, crashed to Earth in Western Australia, actually. Mm. Um, but we're still a long way from the elegant rotating uh, space stations of Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 that turn slowly in time with classical music. Do you reckon we'll ever get there? Or is... I mean, because it seems like... Because we know, also know that... that uh, the orbit, the Earth's orbit, particularly the low Earth orbit, is getting quite, quite crowded with space junk. And we've seen the movie, Sandra Bullock's movie, Gravity. I don't want like a big spinning wheel that's going to get hit by stuff all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, you know, there, there, there are other options like the, the uh, you know, the space elevator concept might be a better option than having... It doesn't sound better to me. Well, you, you need know. somewhere to tether it to. Yeah, the Earth. It's a long way up. Well, the other end is going to be... Well, yeah, and the, but then you have the, the idea is that it's far enough out that it's actually in orbit, but they're just connected by a tether. Yeah, I don't. I, you yeah. wouldn't go up on that. I, they reckon yeah. it'll take a couple of weeks to get up the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Um, but look, this this sort of thing may be a long way off yet, anyway, because even even the new Chinese designs is basically a whole bunch of cylinders stuck together in a various patterns. Um, where where they're easy to dock together, I guess, and just with solar arrays and that sort of stuff. Um, but we, you know, in the next ten years or maybe the next twenty years, we'll see a lot more people uh, working and living in space, even if it's only temporarily. Um, but you know, like if I look back on the, the you know the, the space age of the mid twentieth century, it looks like that was only the beginning of the space age, and we're sort of going through a a resurgence right now. And uh, in the next ten years or so, we'll probably see even more space travel across australia on the community radio network you're listening to lost in science when you think about australian animals that are now feral in new zealand 
You think of one animal, don't you? I do. I think of the possum. The possum. Because the one, I, I've yeah. actually someone's brought back a possum skin hat for me from <laughs> New Zealand. I don't have it anymore, but but it was it brought was back for you because because in New Zealand they're a pest animal and therefore yes. you're allowed to make hats out of them. That's which right. You're not allowed to do here. That's true. Uh, they are a protected species in Australia, not in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Well, what about? Do you think about wallabies? As a pest species in New Zealand. It's a big jump. <laughs> I'm just saying, how did they get there? You, get, you know, a possum you could smuggle in a suitcase. A wallaby, <laughs> it's, it's a bit different. Oh, well, do I have a story for you. Wallabies, lay it on me. Yeah. Lay, <laughs> hop it on me. No? Jump it on me? No. Wear it like Pull a it out of your pouch. All right, okay, so wallabies are actually a huge problem in New Zealand. Uh, Not because they're predators for native flightless birds like the possums are, um, but because they forage on native plants. Um, They also eat farming pastures, so they're impacting on both um, agriculture and biodiversity. Um, Anyway, they're now the object of a large-scale campaign to eradicate them. Uh, And when I was in New Zealand, I saw stickers everywhere um, saying, protect your country from wallaby invaders. Identify, report, destroy. Goodness me. I know. Yeah. Serious business. It is totally serious. This is the Otago Regional Council, so around the Dunedin area. And they mean business. They really want the wallabies gone. Um, So I know you want to know how this happened. I do want to know how this do, do, do they have any idea how many wallabies they've got? That's one thing that I'd be curious to know. There is surprisingly little information as to how many wallabies they have. But um, from interviews with farmers, they ca- they shoot up to like a thousand in a season. So, so multiple just, farmers shooting No, this thousands. is one farmer on one farm shooting up to a thousand. Wow. So there are big... They're, a big they're, they're, they're literally in plague proportions as far as they're concerned. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, and they're really cute as well. Yeah. Which is... Yeah, <laughs> wallabies Wallabies are like the, the kangaroo's cuter cousin. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, okay, so let me cast your mind back to um, the 19th century. So between 1858 and 1870... There were a whole range of marsupials that were let loose in New Zealand. And potentially for hunting purposes, potentially for other reasons, there is very little detail about how many were released and what species were released. But so they what suspect they just up to... Lo- load up a boat with... <laughs> yes. like It's like Noah's Ark and they just let them go. The information around this is very vague. Very, very vague. Um, And so it turns out they didn't really know what was hopping around the island. Um, But what they they do know is the only species to survive from the 12 marsupial marsupial species were brush-tailed possums and wallabies. And they're the ones that have become successfully established. So the wallabies and the possums came at the same time. Okay. Yeah. So they, do they do they in animal terms they call it naturalized because if a plant sort of becomes feral they say it's naturalized in the country where it is but I don't know if that's the term they use for animals. I don't th- I haven't heard that term used for animals but possibly. Mm. I mean we were talking before about um, the possums becoming um, somewhat different to Australian possums yeah, and so taking on this carnivorous nature. Yeah. 
Um, so they may be they may be adapting to the new environment. They, yeah. they might be that could be a whole new species of carnivorous <laughs> possums. We could use them to breed back into like you know uh, to Tasmanian take... tigers to take the place of the uh, <laughs> predators that we've lost. Oh goodness. Oh dear. Any anyway, so these wallabies weren't as hated as much as they are now. Um it wasn't until 1956 that the wallabies became listed as noxious in the Noxious Animals Act in New Zealand. Um and for at least the past 20 years, um they've been extensively controlled. Anyway, so when the wallabies were listed as noxious, um they had to look into the taxonomy. Um, so what actual species had been let go and what species were established now and where were they? So I guess they had to do that. I mean, you've got to write a piece of legislation exactly. saying this is this is the animal this that we're chasing. Animal. So you've got to know what species it is. And they yes. didn't know. And they didn't know before okay. that. So it wasn't until, yeah, the 1950s that they found out what they actually, what wallabies they had. And they all just refer to them as the wallabies, even though they, they had discovered that there were six wallaby species um, in New Zealand. So it isn't just one species. It's the six, six species of different wallabies. Yes. Wow. So so four species are found on Kauai Island, mm. which is an island. I'm probably saying that incorrectly. Um, it's an island off Auckland. Um, and, and they're contained on that island? And they're, they're not contained found anywhere on that else. island, yep. And then there is the Dharma wallaby, which is found around Rotorua, and the Bennett's wallabies, um, which are populated in the South Island, so around South Canterbury and North Otago. Uh, but going back to Kauai Island, um, where there were these four different species of wallabies. So in 1965, the workers on Kauai Island were attempting to control um, plague proportions of a certain species of wallaby. This is the Tamar wallaby. You might have heard of this wallaby before. It's a pretty um, it's pretty popular. Well, it's a very, it's pretty populated in, in Australia. It's pretty common. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so while they were doing this culling, they were uh, quite surprised to discover that some of these wallabies weren't Tamar wallabies at all. Um, but miraculously, a surviving population of a type of wallaby called the Parma wallaby. Yes, like the Parmigiana. No, not not like the Parmigiana. Palmer like a Palmer. Clive Palmer. Like <laughs> Palmer with an A, P-A-R-M-A. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it is like It Palmer. is like the but it isn't short for Parmigiana wallaby. It's Although not. wouldn't it be great if it was? Wallaby Palmer. <laughs> Palmer wallaby Palmer. Palmer wallaby Palmer. <laughs> um, anyway, so this surprise that they felt for discovering the Palmer wallaby uh need to understand a little bit of history. At that time, in 1965, the whole world thought the Palmer wallaby was extinct um, and not just newly extinct in Australia, um, but extinct since the 19th century. So, so no, no one had seen one in Australia no since No one had seen one in Australia century. since the 19th century. Right. And then they popped up um, as a... As an invasive species, <laughs> except, as a noxious species. Except presumably the guy who loaded, the, the people who loaded them onto a boat and sent them to New Zealand. <laughs> they must have seen them. They must have seen them. <laughs> 
Um, so the Palmer wallaby, it's actually the smallest wallaby getting around. Um, it's one-tenth the size of a red kangaroo. So um, it's quite it's quite small. It looks a lot like a paddy melon if you look. If you oh, know so what a little tiny wallaby. Very, very small. Yeah. Uh, it's got greyish-brown fur and it's quite white under the chin. So what, do you know where they were found in Australia before they were extinct? Um, well, I think they were found around South Australia. Okay. But... Um, but hold that thought because I will come back to it. Um, anyway, so the wallaby extermination effort, it was put on hold and the Palmer wallabies were captured um, and sent to zoos around Australia um, in the hope that they could breed in captivity and could um, eventually be reintrodu- reintroduced to their native habitat. Mm. Uh Anyway, following this, for the next 15 years, Palmer wallabies were protected in New Zealand, so they went off the noxious list to the protected list. <laughs> so they've got, a, they've got a pest problem, but because they're an extinct, an extinct animal, animal, they get protection. They get protection. Look, I guess that's kind of fair enough. We'd, it's, we'd, it's very fair enough, I think. I think we'd do the same for them if there was a New Zealand animal. What, if animal there was a noxious kiwi on the yeah. list? <laughs> Some 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 ground parrot that we found in plague proportions. We just yep. No, we've got to protect. It's it. okay. It's okay. <laughs> we will protect the Kia. Um. Anyway, so this lasted till 1984. Yeah. And then in 1984, um, with the security in Australia confirmed, um, the ban on the Palmer was lifted. People could. Um, it was open season. It was open season on the Palmer. It's, it's Palmer season. <laughs> yeah. So miraculously now, due to this effort, um, and also um, a discovery that Palmer of Palmer wallaby populations in New South Wales, like north of Gosford, um, they found them there as well, like completely unrelated populations. Mm. Um, so back to your question about where they actually exist in Australia. They're also around New South Wales on the coastal region. Um so this has led to the Palmer wallaby going from the classification of extinct to now being um, the somewhat uh, better classification of near threatened. Oh, not even endangered. Not even near endangered. threatened. Yeah. Well, that's pretty good. That's pretty great, that's, isn't that's it? That's a great leap. Yeah. So I think it's a really interesting story about not rushing into culling and using science to inform um, how to get the best biodiversity outcomes. For everyone. A hopping good story. You're travelling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop... Lost in science. Okay, you're listening to Lost in Science of the Community Radio Network. My name is Chris, and like you may have, I saw some news recently about the discovery of a new organ. I'm doing the quotey fingers there. Yeah, I did I did see this, and it did make me read the article because I thought, where could you possibly find a new organ? Mm. Yeah, this is a new organ, a human body organ, I should say. Um, yes, they called it the interstitium. Now, what it is is a network of channels, I suppose you could say, between the cells of the body and this network carries fluid. Um, some stories, news stories say, claim that it could be the biggest organ in the human body that has just been hiding in plain sight all along. So so this means that all of those trivia questions about what's the biggest organ in the body will be wrong now. 
Used to be the skin. Well, it's. I don't think this one is fully accepted okay. uh, enough. But um, look, I've got to say, it did make me chuckle a bit, this story, because every few years there is a story about a new organ discovered or a new body part. And it's always met with the same kind of incredulity, the same level of surprise, saying, oh, even the 21st century, we're still finding new parts of the body. I even saw one person on Twitter who was using this discovery of the interstitium as a reason to deny climate change. They're basically saying, oh, well, if, you know, all the scientists didn't even know that this existed until last week, why should we believe 97% of them saying that the climate is changing? That's quite outrageous. Yeah. Anyway. But look, there are still things in the body being discovered. Um, but they, you always find there is a reason why they've taken so long to, to figure out. So the most recent one that I could find was January 2017. There was, I don't know if you remember, there were the mesentery, um, which is kind of a double fold of the abdominal lining and the peritoneum. Um, and it basically is a bit of a fold that holds the intestine in place. Um, it has been... It had been known of for centuries, but it was kind of only reclassified as an organ last year. So that was kind of a new organ again, in quotation marks. Is, there, is, there, a, is there a body of, of, you know, physiologists who sit around deciding what are organs and what aren't organs? I think it's generally just vague consensus. Um, the mesentery appeared in Grey's Anatomy, and that was like the, not the TV show, the actual book. The book Grey's Anatomy, yeah, yeah. which the TV show stole the title from. That's right. Yeah. So that was its big marker. Um, in 2013, there was Dewar's layer, which was not, wasn't an organ, but it was, I suppose, the sixth layer of the cornea in the eye. Um, now, it's only 15 micrometres thick, and basically, it's still controversial. Not everyone agrees that it exists. So. Is it made of scotch? No. D-U-A. Oh, right. D-U-A. So that one is basically not kind of totally verified. Still not accepted by everyone? Yeah, yeah. So that's another reason why that one was listened. Okay, but this one, then um, this is is the interesting one, though. Uh, Not completely new, obviously, but the full extent of the clitoris was only discovered in the past 20 years um, by Australian urologist Helen O'Connell, who did some dissections in 1998 and eventually a full 3D ultrasound in 2009 to discover the full extent of the clitoris. So you can probably guess the reason why this one took so long. (coughs) Sexism. Yeah, well, yeah, it took yeah. a female physiologist to uh, to investigate yeah. it thoroughly enough yes. by the sound of things. Essentially. Yeah. But, like, yeah, with the interstitium, again, we knew something about it. Uh, people knew that there was this connective tissue between cells. They knew there was interstitial fluid. They basically knew how much there needed to be. Um, this interstitial fluid is also known as lymph. You may have heard of it. It connects to the lymphatic system. Um, lymph is... Like, it's a yellowy kind of liquid similar to blood plasma. It's that transparent stuff that oozes from sores... You know, after it stopped bleeding, really. I don't know. I just bandage it up and carry on, mm. usually. Surely when you are a kid, you would have noticed this kind yeah, of sticky probably, stuff. Probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the thing about all this stuff, though, this, uh, this bit between the cells, is it's really hard to see. See, the problem is that when you look under tissue under a microscope, you've got to... You've got to slice it very thin. You've got to treat it with chemicals. And essentially, it's dead tissue, obviously. Yeah. So, yeah, it behaves differently to living tissue. And in particular, the gaps between cells. You know, they saw these gaps between cells, but didn't really realise kind of what was going on there. So it sort of collapses a bit too, I yeah, guess. Yeah, it's basically. Like it's, it's, it's not and you functioning it, properly. You so slice it thinly and all the, all the liquid drains away as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, this latest discovery was uh, started basically in 2015 with some endoscopists. 
um, at the in New York. They are investigating a patient's bile duct. They're looking for signs of cancer, and they're using a technique called confocal laser endomicroscopy and a with a fluorescein injection. Basically, they stick a laser microscope inside you, um, so they can look at things look at living tissue, living functioning tissue. Um, and what they found was a, a, small, a small bit of the interstitial space having a depth of 60 to 70 micrometers and filled with lymph. And they saw connecting to the lymph nodes um, where the, the lymph were draining the lymph nodes. And they saw it supported by this network of collagen fibers and stuff. They basically saw essentially this whole kind of structure with all this lymph flowing through it. And they said, what's this? This is not in the textbooks. Um, yeah, so um, they saw that in the bile duct. Um, then they began to do a lot of, look at a lot of other parts of the body, and they found it in, you know, in the stomach and intestines, other parts of the digestive system, uh, the esophagus. They saw it around the muscles and in fat and around veins and arteries and then skin, and basically realized that this stuff is pretty much everywhere. So it's basically, this is the, the spaces between cells yeah. are full of a fluid and there's a, a structural component holding it all together, sort of. Yeah, yeah. And it's very, very similar to plants, in a way. Yeah, Plants basically. have cell walls, and that's all usually full of fluid, and, you know, um, we're, we're sort of more like plants than we thought, maybe. Perhaps, yeah. Um, look, the, the liquid is believed to account for about 20% of, the body, of our body weight, which is why it's considered the largest organ. Now, is this, this was something I think I read in the article, too, is that there was, there was a... There was a a part of our body mass that they couldn't account for? Um, well, they couldn't, I suppose, the references that I've seen looking back earlier than this discovery would talk about this amount of, of the interstitial fluid and how much there was of it. Um, I guess they just didn't know where it went in the body. Okay. So, but yeah, they knew that it was they there. They just figured it was there somewhere. Yeah, they, they, knew it, they knew it was there. They knew how much lymph or interstitial fluid there was. Okay. Um, yeah, they just didn't exactly know how it all fit together. So yeah, there's been a bit of exaggeration there, I think. And um, also the idea of calling it a new organ, this is, this is what they have called it in their, in their publication. It's not an official classification. Um, other people you know, have to agree on that, that it is actually an, an organ. So what are they, if, if it's an organ, what is its function? What does it do? Well, they're saying that it does stuff like, obviously the lymph transports lots of chemicals, you know, nutrients to cells, but also toxins away from cells, as well as like messengers and um, chemicals between Hormones cells. Hormones and things like yeah, that. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, and it also, is, I believe it's a, a cushioning for tissue, like a kind of a shock absorber, absorber thing that... Um, you know, basically the liquid between the, the tissues acts like um, a shock absorber. Oh, right. So if you yeah. hit something, it sort of squishes all the liquid out of the interstitium. Yeah. And then it flows back in when it gets uncompressed. Yeah, they've noticed it a lot in um, in parts of the body that uh, compress and de and uncompress a lot. So muscles, obviously, but, you know, the, yeah, the, the digestive system, anything where there's a lot of movement and compressing and uncompressing, okay. there's like a lot of this stuff. So, yeah, it does seem to have that shock absorber thing. Um, on the negative side, it could also be involved in spreading diseases, including cancer. It might explain how um, cancer can metastasize and spread to other parts of the body. Um, but yeah, look, it's not the first time either that something like this has been seen. Um, a couple of years ago, there was also a discovery of a similar kind of network in the brain that again was using a new microscopic technique using fluorescence to, to see how living tissue functions. So essentially what we're seeing is we're finding new technology that allows us to see 
human body, living human body functioning, and we're discovering new things about it, which when you put it that way, is not so surprising. I guess it's just surprising that some of this stuff is so big that we didn't really understand it. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.